0: Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Um, I know the Christmas decorations were up last week, but I didn't say anything about it. And they reminded me of a story that, it's a really funny story to me, but it's one of those that in my head I think, you know, when I tell you this, it may not come across as funny to you as it is to me in remembering it. And so I'm just going to tell you that it may not do that, but I'm going to tell you the story anyway. So um, when I... First felt like God was calling me uh to preach and to pastor and I was wrestling with that in my, my life. God brought a guy into my life who was I think he was thirteen years older than me, he may have been fourteen or fifteen years older than me, but he was already in ministry, already pastoring and preaching. And for a pretty good period of my life, like eight or nine years, he took me under his wing and mentored me and discipled me, and I even served on staff with him for about three years right after I got out of seminary. And uh he just did a lot to invest in me and pour into me, but one day he was telling me a story about when he had first, and, and he didn't really grow up with a church background, wasn't real familiar with church stuff, and God got a hold of him you know, later in life, in his 20s, you know, after he'd left home, gone to college, um, was actually, had graduated college, working a secular job. God got a hold of him, saved him, called him into ministry. And he was, um, in, in the church world, like church eyes, he was real rough around the edges compared to what like, church people expect you to be like. And so he just had great stories about coming into all these churches that didn't expect him to be what he was and the ways God would use that. But he was in seminary, and he was pastoring a church, and a, another church had asked him to come preach a revival, like a, do Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday, like all week, every night, all week. And he got to the church, and it was a church that was like more proper and particular, about the way everything looked and the way everything was done. Um, you know, pretty set in this is how you always do things and how it always looks. And it was one of those churches that had the, the white Lord's Supper table up front and then the two big white chairs on each side of it, if you know what I'm talking about. Um, and in the middle of the Lord's Supper table, they had put this huge uh, flower arrangement with live flowers. And somebody, it was somebody's job. Like they changed it out every few weeks. And it was just like this big deal. It was always there. And so anyway, Troy... Got up that first night of the revival and he was kind of talking to the congregation and just felt like it was real. And so he was trying to get some interaction and he decided to do like a question and answer. And he got this bright idea in his question and answer that whoever could answer the questions right, he was going to give away the flower arrangement as a gift. <laughs> and he was like, Well, I mean, I didn't really think about the fact that it wasn't mine to give away and it wasn't my church, and, like, he just went down the list, of, and you could see everybody, he said, you could just see everybody, like, stiffen up. So he goes and, like, picks the thing up, and is asking questions, and somebody answers, and he walks down off the stage and tries to hand it, and I don't remember if it was a guy in a suit or a lady, but he tries to hand it to him. Well, it had the real flower food in it, like the blue stuff, and he spills it all over him. So he's giving away that. Their... So anyway, I was thinking that this isn't mine. I'm not going to give it away today when we do our interaction time, but that's just what it reminded me of was... Uh, giving that away and Troy doing that, that that's, that's all. You did laugh a little bit, so I guess you're tracking with me. Um, but the Bergs helped Tasha and Justin on staff decorate everything a week ago. We really appreciate that. It, it does feel like Christmas. And also along those lines, headed toward Christmas. This is going to be our last Sunday morning in Acts until after the new year. Uh, we're going to be in primarily in Acts 16 today. We're going to grab those last verses of chapter 15 that we didn't look at the past couple of weeks. So if you want to turn there to Acts 15, starting in verse 36. But the next two weeks, just so you know what's coming, my plan is next Sunday we're going to do Matthew 1 and work through Matthew 1 together. And then the Sunday after that we'll work through Matthew 2 together. And then that Sunday that comes right after uh, Christmas, the 26th, and we'll probably also do this for our Christmas Eve service, is the plan is to have a family service in here, all the kids in with us. It'll be a little bit shorter. Um, But I'm going to bring in the Jesus Storybook Bible, that children's Bible that I talk about from time to time. And we're going to read a couple of the Christmas stories out of it and probably have the kids come up here and let them text for us first and with us. Um, And so we'll stay in in Christmas stories, but doing it with the children and and same approach, same method. But that'll be the plan. And I'm telling you that partly because I would love for you, if you would do me a favor this week. if you've never done this yet in the past six months, and if you have done it every week, if you would do this this week, sometime this week, would you sit down with Matthew chapter one, like before next Sunday morning, and would you just pray and say, God, will you teach me right now by your spirit from your word? And then read Matthew one and just ask, what's this teach about God? And see what God says to you this week about himself, how he shows himself to you in the beginning of that Christmas story in Matthew 1. And so that we come in next week, not just in the, the routine and ritual of what we do on a Sunday morning, but really already having been asking God to speak to us and already hearing him throughout the weekend and ready to say, hey, these are things that God's showing me. These are things he's saying and as we come together to encourage each other with those truths. And then we'll come and we'll look at that again next week. And so I hope each week that you know that you can do that in advance. You know, we send out that email newsletter Thursday or Friday each week, um, and we always try to include in there what our text will be for Sunday morning, the passage that we'll be in, so that you can, you can read that in advance and you can study it and you can pray through it ahead of time. And, and you know that what we're going to be asking is, what's this teach us about God? And so that you can come in and say, hey, this is what we're looking at. This is where we're going to be. And I'm, I'm more prepared mentally and spiritually to hear from God because I've done that ahead of time and I, and I know what's coming. And so I just want to make sure that you're aware of that. And one of the reasons we do that, I was having a great conversation with somebody this week um, and, and this came up and, and he was like, You use that on Sunday mornings as an illustration. I thought, okay, I will. I'll just, you said I should, so I will. Uh, it was one of our other elders. It was Adam Alme. And I was saying that I feel like for a long time in my life, like if we like, throw out church for a minute, what we're talking like Sunday morning gathering, and just pretend as a, like a metaphor that we're talking about baseball. I felt like for a long time, that it was almost like signing up for baseball and going to baseball practice and sitting down, and the coach stands up every week and lectures about baseball for 30 minutes. And he gives you all this information about baseball, and then he's like, all right, Good practice. We're done for the week. See you next week. And every week you come back and for 30 minutes you talk about baseball. And you get more information about baseball. Good job. You know more about baseball today. See you next week. And we don't, don't ever practice baseball. <laughs> we never pick up a ball, never pick up a bat, never play catch, never hit the ball, never field the ball. I don't think that any of us would go to any kind of sports practice Ever, or even like a class in school, and think all I'm gonna do is just get information. We know that it's to be used, it's to like the purpose of learning about baseball is to play baseball. And so, one of the reasons that we're trying to do what we're trying to do each week, and I know that it's different than normal, um, that even though we've got our flower arrangements, like it doesn't fit with a real prim and proper setting always, but I feel like we've had a tendency sometimes in our typical experience of church to come and say, hey, here's a bunch of information about God for 30 minutes. Good job. We're done. That was the point. See you next week. And then next week, hey, here's 30 minutes of information about God. Good job. You're done. See you next week. And you know, that's not the point of this time, right? I feel like we do see that over and over and over everywhere we've looked in scripture the last six months, but especially in the book of Acts, that, that God is doing something in his people, that he's alive that Jesus Christ is resurrected and ascended into heaven and he has sent his spirit and there's this active work of God going on where he is building his church and he's building his church through his people by changing their hearts and changing their lives and calling them to be his people on mission in the world with his message, with his gospel, to know him intimately, to be in prayer and dependence on him, fasting, worshiping him and that's changing them in such a way that it flows out of them to others. And so it's just that feeling of, this time is so that we'll actually pick up a bat and ball together, and we'll practice together, and we'll learn what it is that he's calling us to do, that when we go from here, it's not just, okay, I got a little more information about God, I'm good till next week, but it's this is what God has called me to do in my life, like me personally, in my relationship with God, that I would know him that way, that I would seek him that way, that I would encounter him this way, in his word and in prayer, and then that he would use me to do that with other people, that, he, that I would open my eyes and say, who are you bringing into my life that you've told me your spirit and your word is sufficient for what you want to do in my life and their life, and and I want to do this as your spirit lives in me and works through me. And so each week, our goal, in a sense, is to say, can we come together and practice baseball instead of just talking about baseball? Can can we come together and say, God intends for this to be lived out in our life, not just talked about? Um, And it's fine to have a coach. The Bible says that God appoints pastors and teachers and, and gives them gifts for the purpose of equipping the body and building up the body. Like it's fine to have somebody, that but I feel like as a coach, my job is to teach you how to play baseball, not just give you information about baseball. Coming back to what we're talking about now, like to, to teach you how to encounter God in his word in prayer, just to keep prompting you and reminding you of uh, what it looks like to really depend on God in prayer, to really come to God in His Word, to believe that the Spirit takes the Word and it's alive and He has things to say to you to apply to your heart. And He has things to give to you so that you'll give it to others. That that would be our goal in what we're doing. And even this week, I was really encouraged. I heard like three different stories um, of people where God's doing this in our church, in their lives. That A couple of people told me that they're meeting every week together and, and texting through... Um, A book of the Bible. And then another member of the church that's meeting with somebody who doesn't go to church anywhere and just say, hey, let's let's work through this book of the Bible and text each other what this teaches us about God. Um, Like somebody who's in a lot of ways far from God, not plugged into church anywhere. And one of the people in our church has built a relationship with them and said, let's just learn about God from from the Bible. And then uh, Eric this week was talking uh, to Keith about how excited that he is about the way that God's using this in our students' lives and the students that God's bringing on Wednesday nights and the things that they're seeing and and just how excited he is for parents to realize what God's doing and showing them. And so I'm thankful for the way that God is faithful to work through his word. I want to keep trusting him to do that. And I just wanted to give you like a little nudge and encouragement um, that if you've been sitting here listening and kind of, I don't know, this week, like if you would just just stick your toes in the water. Matthew chapter one for next Sunday morning. Just, God, will you please teach me right now by your spirit from your word? And then read Matthew one and just ask, what's this teach me about God? And, and see what he says to you without me or anybody else in this room saying anything first. Like hear from him directly this week and, and encounter him that way in his word. So that's where we'll be. Matthew one next week, Matthew two the week after, a couple of family worship services around Christmas coming out of the Christmas story in the Jesus Storybook Bible. Um, also next week with Matthew 1, we'll be taking the Lord's Supper together at the end of the service, and so the, the kids will come in with us just so that you know that that's coming as well. All right, I think that's all of that for now. We're good, though. I promise today we're going to be good somehow. Matthew 15, starting in verse 36, we're going to go through the end of Ma- uh, Matthew 15. Acts 15, starting in verse 36, we're going to go through the end of chapter 16. I'm going to pray for us right now. And we're going to ask God that this would be not just a time of information, but a time of spiritual work, a time where He teaches us by His Spirit and He works in our hearts. And then we'll read this and ask you to listen first of all for what does this teach us about God. So let's pray together. Father, thank You for this time right now. Thank You for Your goodness and Your grace and Your faithfulness to speak to us and teach us by Your Spirit from Your Word. And we ask You to do that right now as only You can. We confess, Father, that if anything's going to happen in the depths of our heart that has real spiritual power and produces spiritual fruit and results and, and spiritual life in us, that you have to do it right now. We cannot do it. That our words don't have that kind of power. My words don't have that kind of power. But you do. And we trust you for that and we thank you for that. And so we ask for that right now in the name of Jesus. Show us more of who you are and change us and build your church. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, so Acts 15. Paul and Barnabas have been on their first missionary journey together, started several churches in places where the name of Jesus had never been heard before. They come back, and in Acts 15, they had faced this uh, pretty big debate and disagreement in the early church of is the message Jesus alone or is the message Jesus and? Jesus and the Jewish law. Jesus and circumcision. Is the message what God has done for you in Jesus and that's enough and it's sufficient and Jesus' work is perfect and complete and he's all you need or is the message God has done this and you've got to add this to it. You've got to do this to prove and we've I know we spent the last two weeks on that and listen I was really really Really, 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 really tempted to spend another week on it this week, Uh, and we may keep referring back to it, but we're going to move ahead right here. So after, after that Jerusalem council where the apostles and the elders say, no, it's Jesus alone, it's only Jesus, it is just Jesus, this is where the story picks back up with Paul and Barnabas ready to head on a second missionary journey. We're going to have about three sections here to the end of chapter 16. And I know there may be more stuff that we can cover during this time, and that's okay. We'll pick back up after Christmas if we need to, but I just want to keep it all together today. So here we go. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers of Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on, as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight... Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. All right, I know there's a lot of details in there, but let's just start with what's that teach us about God? What are some things that stand out to you? Truths about who God is, how He works, His nature, character. God can give joy despite our circumstances. Mm. God can give joy despite our circumstances. beaten with rods in prison, shackled in the middle of the night, and still praying and singing hymns to God. The source of their joy had to be something other than things are going well, I feel really good, even something other than their freedom. The source of their joy was who God was, that he was still the same, that he was still good, even when their circumstances were really, really bad. What else? God... God can use disagreements within the church for his purposes. This is a, this section right here with Paul and Barnabas, um, in my head I thought we may spend quite a bit of time on it this morning and we don't have to do it all right now at this moment. But you think about what's going on here. Like when, when Jesus first calls Paul and changes his life, nobody believes that he's really been changed. And it's Barnabas that comes and gets him and shows him grace and gives him a chance when nobody else does. And then when he's, you know, Paul starts preaching publicly and they almost kill him and so they send him off and he's basically in hiding for a while. And then when Barnabas is at Antioch, he's the one that goes and gets Paul and brings him to Antioch, and Paul starts teaching in Antioch. And then Barnabas and Paul are the ones set apart by God, called by God on that first missionary journey together. Like, they have been through the fire together. And in a lot of ways, Barnabas has been to Paul, but Troy that I was talking about earlier, what Troy was to me for several years of my life. He's the one that's brought Paul along and, and walked Paul through this. And on that first missionary journey, Barnabas' uh, cousin, Mark, that well, we know Mark that wrote the Gospel of Mark, John Mark, went with him. But something happened, and we don't know if he got scared, if he saw all the persecution, if he saw Paul get stoned. I don't, you don't know what happened, but at some point, he leaves, abandons them. So they're about to go on the second missionary journey, and Barnabas, like, I'm going to offer my interpretation of what I see here, and you can just read it, and if you say, hey, that's not what's going on, that's okay. But what I see is Barnabas saying the same thing about Mark that Barnabas said about Paul. Right? Nobody believes we should give Paul this chance. I'm giving Paul this chance. This is what grace looks like. Nobody believes we should give Mark this chance. I'm giving Mark this chance. And the best I can tell, Paul misses it right here. Like, Paul relapses into old Pharisee Paul mode, right? No, he abandoned us. This is what it looks like. I'm done with him. I don't trust him. He can't come. And, they have, and so you've got these two huge pillars in the early church that have such a massive disagreement over whether we take Mark with us that they part company. This is a terrible thing. And don't, don't gloss over it. This is a terrible thing. This is not what Jesus intends for his church. Like the, the breaking of unity, the breaking of fellowship, especially over whether or not we extend grace to somebody who messed up. Like this is a big deal and a big problem. And you would feel like we've got, a mission, we've got one mission team in the whole world right now. Right? In Acts 13, Paul called out Paul and Barnabas and here they've gone and started all these churches and they're going to go... And now that mission team just got blown up by a disagreement. How's the gospel reaching the nations? Well, here's what God does in the middle of all their mess in the middle of them getting it wrong, in the middle of them fighting to the point that they can't even figure out a way that they could work together anymore in the name of Jesus, God shows up and he says, okay, my mission team got blown up by human disagreements and arguments and and by Paul missing the gospel and missing restoration and missing grace. Here's what I'm going to do now that my mission team got blown up. I'll make two. (laughs) And here goes Barnabas and Mark, and here goes Paul and Silas, and all of a sudden, we've got double the work of God happening. And listen, this is 100% the grace of God. This is 100% Jesus saying, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not overcome it. Like, the, the truth that I wrote down about this was this. We mess it up. God redeems all of it. And then this way, underneath it, when we say redeems, and I mean this, like when we really see God's full redemption, even better than it could have been otherwise. Right? Listen, don't minimize, they get it wrong. And also, don't overlook the fact that Luke doesn't hide the fact that they got it wrong. This is how the Bible, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, deals with it. When when believers mess up, when leaders in the church mess up, they got it wrong. We're not going to ignore it. We're not going to hide it. They messed up, and God redeemed it. Because here's the thing. If you're not honest about the fact that they had this argument, they had this disagreement, that they split company, then we don't see that God comes in and He takes the pieces of their mess and He redeems it and turns it into something greater than it was before. If you're not honest about how bad they messed up, you don't get the right picture of how good and gracious God is to step into your mess and redeem it and use it in greater ways than it would have been otherwise. Like, we have to be honest that we are these broken people who fail and mess up and it's like they just like just stood shoulder to shoulder, And fought for the gospel. Like, so courageously and so monumentally in the history of the church in Acts 15. And then they turn right around, and they can't get the gospel enough to serve together. And listen, that is who we are. Like, that is a picture of us. We mess up. We lose sight. We are so fickle. Like, one day, one day you are going to knock it out of the park. And the next day you are going to absolutely blow it all up. And let me tell you something, neither thing, (laughs) neither thing dictates what God's doing. Like, he's doing what he does because of him, and he's gracious to do it through you. He doesn't need you to give him your perfection or your fake perfection or your performance. He's coming to you and saying, I'll take everything you've got, all your brokenness, all your mess, all your sin, and I'll redeem it. And I'll turn it into something better than you ever could have given me otherwise. And and from the very beginning in the church, it's almost like Luke's intentional saying, hey, don't get the wrong picture here. Everything that happens, because listen, for the rest of this book, we follow Paul. We're, We're almost exactly halfway through the book. And the second half of the book is all Paul's journeys. And it'd be real easy. I know how we are. We read the Bible this way. We look at life this way. We think about our life this way. To read the Bible and think, look at what Paul did. Paul didn't do anything. Jesus called Paul when Paul was a violent persecutor of the church. And then when Paul tries to blow up the only missionary team that exists, Jesus keeps using Paul. And look at how, look at how Luke writes it here. I love the way he says it. After, after they split company, after they've gotten it wrong, and it seems like it's Paul the one that's mainly getting it wrong. So Paul picks up Silas here, commended by the brothers to what? Hey, Paul, here's the only way you're going to be a missionary. We know, we know. In Acts nine, that Jesus called you by His grace. You were arresting Christians and having them executed, and Jesus came and called you, and it was sheer grace. Like you hadn't even started to turn to Jesus. It wasn't because of something in you; it was because of something in Him. And then we know in Acts thirteen that the Spirit spoke to the church in Antioch and said, "Set apart Paul and Barnabas for the work to which I've called them." That just He chose you by grace. That's the only reason you've ever been doing what you're doing. That's your only hope now, Paul. And we pray over you and we trust that God's going to use you because of his grace. Not commended to the abilities of Paul. Not commended even to the calling of Paul or the experience of Paul or the fact that Paul had done this before and proven that he could do it and he was zealous about it. None of it. Commended to the grace of the Lord. This would be the hope. This would be the redemption. This would be how God worked. This would be how God built his church. And so you read the rest of this book. Why? Because of the grace of God, not because of Paul. And a whole other missionary journey of these chapters, a whole other missionary journey after that, arrested in prison, sent to Rome, preaching in Rome in the middle of the Roman Empire, all that, the grace of the Lord, the grace of God, the work of God. And if God can work through Paul, God can work through you. If God's grace is enough for Paul and his mistakes and his relapses, God's grace is enough for you. If God's grace is enough when Paul absolutely, completely misses it, God's grace is enough for you when you absolutely, completely miss it. But the other thing right here that's really important, when Paul misses it, they commend him to the grace of the Lord. That'll be his hope when he misses it. Our temptation when we miss it is to say, okay, I messed up, I missed it, now I'm going to go fix it. I'm going to, here, here's what I'll do. I'll be better. I'll work harder. I'll try more. I, here's my resolutions, God. Here's what I'm going to do for you now to make up for it. He's like, I don't want your effort. I don't want your works. I want you to trust my grace. Instead of coming and saying, here's what I'll do to get it right, you come and you confess. I'm wrong. I got it wrong. Jesus is my only hope. Jesus is the one who will build his church. You do that through me or it won't happen in me. I'll trust you. I'll rely on you. I'm asking for your promises, not my resolutions. Your grace, not my effort. You do this. Will you turn to you once you've messed up or will you turn to the grace of the Lord? It's a really... God can use disagreements within the church, failure, Mistakes, sin, for his purposes. His grace is big enough for all of it. Who's that? Oh. Hmm. You could read it that way. When I read it, that's not the way I hear it. Um, let me thought one more piece, and then we'll, we'll move to verse six and seven. Um, just so you know, what happens long term with Paul, Mark, and Barnabas? If you look at the end of Second Timothy, uh, which is the last letter that Paul writes before he's executed. He he does live passionately and faithfully for Jesus and make the gospel known in such a way that eventually he gets arrested and arrested again arrested probably three times and the last time gets executed. But he's writing a letter from prison to Timothy and he says, send Mark to me for he's useful to me in my work. And you see this guy that he had rejected years earlier. And somewhere along the way, Paul said, no, I need to be reconciled to Mark. And he is, like the grace of God makes him useful in ministry. and So we see reconciliation between Paul and Mark. Uh, we also see a reference to Mark and Barnabas both in Colossians 4 when Paul writes that. And then also in 1 Corinthians 9 when Paul is holding up examples to the Corinthian church of, like, this is the way we should live and be willing to lay down our rights for the sake of the gospel. He says, or is it just me and Barnabas who should do this? And, and that's written several years after this, this blow-up. And so he's saying, look... I know Barnabas is a great example of what it looks like to lay down your rights for the cause of Jesus. And so he speaks highly of Barnabas and Mark later. And so we know that this was a temporary uh, division, that they did pursue reconciliation at some point, and even Paul and Mark serving together at the end of, of Paul's life. Um, and so I would just say, when we say, hey, we messed it up and God redeems it, part of that process of we messed it up and God redeems it is if you know that's the work of God, then join him in that work in redeeming the relationships that you've messed up. Pursue the restoration that, that this is what the gospel looks like. This, when we get it wrong, and we're going to get it wrong, and we're going to argue, and we're going to divide, and we're going to split, and it's a disaster. And God's good in the middle of disasters, and God's faithful in the middle of disasters, and God's grace is sufficient for disasters. And then when we open our eyes, we're like, God's still gracious, and God's still working. The grace that God's shown me by not casting me off when I got it wrong. Let me show that to other people. And let's go pursue this reconciliation that we see here that eventually happens in Paul and uh, Barnabas and Mark's lives. I'll come to this section in just a minute that we're talking about here. Let me give you all five more minutes. Anything else that you see that you want to say? The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. God has to open hearts. Heart work is God's work. This verse right here is a perfect reason why we pray before we do this. And it's why that prayer is not empty ritual. And it's not just, we pray every week, so we pray. Because I really believe this, and I hope that you really believe this, that if a spiritual work that reaches our hearts is going to take place, God has to do it. Like In the way that you read, the Lord opened our heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. What that means is that Paul could say everything he said, the exact same words, it could be perfectly true, perfectly accurate, perfectly compelling. Paul could be the best speaker in the world. He wasn't. By his own testimony, he says that he wasn't. But he could have been the best speaker in the world, and he could have had the perfect presentation of all the biblical truths and information of here's how you play baseball that you ever had. And unless something happens on a deeper level that Paul can't do, those words won't change Lydia's heart. Do you see that? Now, when God changes her heart, it's by what Paul says right? He, like, he uses Paul speaking the truth about Jesus to change her heart. That's what God works through, but God's the one that has to do it. And if you take him out of the equation, those words don't have power in and of themselves. They have power because of God, because of his work to open her heart. And so for us to come and say, hey, we are 100% dependent on God. If anything of spiritual significance is going to happen, that's not just something that we're saying. Like, it's the utter absolute truth. We need God to do this. Only God can do this. And so the easiest way to know, am I starting to really believe that, is do you pray like you believe that? Like if God's the only one that can do it, are you asking him to do it? And then also do you believe he's actually promised to do it? Like over and over and over and over. He said he'll build his church. So do you believe that the one who's able is willing, and so it makes all the sense in the world to ask him, like Do this. You said that you will, and I know you can, so I'm going to ask you to because I know we can't. Like, is God stirring up that type of prayer in you, that you pray like God has to open hearts, God has to change hearts, God has to do this work? One more thing you want to point out. What is it? God to it power, it's great, it's great. <laughs> Which part do you have in mind when you say this? Yeah. But in the spirit, uh, I'm staying put to show God's power. That's awesome. Let's, let's track through this story now based on this truth right here. God sometimes calls us to do the unexpected, to show his power, his glory, his grace. Because I think this really starts back up here. So here Paul is on this missionary journey, and we would say, okay, I'm going to go to these places, and I'm going to speak the word there. I just feel like we assume that's a no-brainer, right? Yeah, go tell everybody about Jesus. And Luke says the Holy Spirit forbid them to do that. Like Paul sets off and he thinks, here's my plan. This is where I'm going now. And he's on that way, and somehow Luke doesn't tell us how. I don't know if it's a vision, I don't know if it's circumstances, I don't know if it's other people around him saying, hey, we need to do something different. In this particular instance, Luke doesn't tell us. But somewhere along the way here, the Holy Spirit stops and is like, no, that's not where you're going. And I just want to stop right there and just say, you want to know the truth about God? God has the right to interrupt your plans. God has the right to redirect you. We follow God, not a plan. And it is so easy for us to follow plans. It's so easy for us to follow Our plans. And like once we've made them, the, that is the goal. The plan's the goal, not Jesus. Like we, we set out to do this, so we've got to do this. And sometimes God shows up right in the middle, and he lets you take the journey for the long He's like, hey, guess what? We're going this way now. Come with me, because I've got something for you. So this is what happens. So he, he redirects them. And you would, you would, if you're like me anyway, like, efficiency can be an idol in my life. Like that's a confession in my heart. That's not, I'm not saying that flippantly. I'm not trying to make, oh, that's funny. Like Seriously. I like, just want to do things in the simplest, most practical way can make me unloving and unkind and impatient, and I can ignore everything. I can have blinders on because it makes us do it this way, let's do it this way. Like It's a problem in my heart, and I have to be really, really careful that I don't get so focused on being efficient in a task that I lose sight of people and I lose sight of God. And so for me, like if God interrupts my plans and and I'm obedient enough and faithful enough to listen and get redirected, then in my mind, it's like, all right, well, whatever he's got for me, let's get there and do it. Right, it was important enough to interrupt my plans, so what is it? So here we come to Mysia, and we're going to go into Bithynia. I guess God stopped us from going to Phrygia and Galatia because he wants us in Bithynia, <laughs> but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. <laughs> and he stops them, and he's like, hey, uh, I redirected you from there to here, just so I can redirect you again. Because <laughs> at some point you're going to learn. <laughs> It's not about the destination, it's about your relationship with me. At some point you're going to learn, I don't need you to go anywhere for me. You need to follow me. Learn this. Learn what it's like to really follow Jesus and not your plan, to trust Jesus and not your plan, for Jesus to be the goal and not you being efficient or effective or getting stuff done or making it work or making it look good. Just trust Jesus. And so they listen. Praise God that the Spirit's at work in them, and they listen. And so they pass by Mysia, and they go down to Troas. So third place, right? Like we've, we tried Phrygia and Galatia. We tried Mysia and Bithynia. Now we go on to Troas. Maybe, or maybe this is it. He wouldn't let us stop there because he wants us in Troas. We get to Troas, and now Paul gets this vision of a man in Macedonia. Fourth place, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And so it's just notice, it's not Troas either. But finally, no, 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 when you listen to no, listen to no, listen to no, and you get to Troas, God says, here, this is why. This is what I've been preparing you for. This is where I I, I redirected you from there to there to there, so you would be ready to hear this. So they follow, and they go to Macedonia, which is Philippi, which is the the letter to the Philippians in your New Testament is to this church in Philippi. And so they they sit over there, they get there, and it, it starts really well, right? You've got this woman named Lydia who hears the gospel. God opens her heart to believe, and she's so receptive that she invites him to come and stay at her house, gives them a place to take care of them and provide for them in her house. And then we've got this slave girl, and Paul miraculously and powerfully drives the demon out of her. But that makes the guys really, really mad because she made them a lot of money. Um, when they, where is it? When they saw when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, it was all good till Paul messed with their money. Right? Yeah, you can tell Lydia about Jesus, you can stay in her house, you can tell the people about Jesus, but you mess with their money, we're going to get mad. And so they beat Paul and Silas, throw them into prison. And you've got to be thinking at this moment, like when they're sitting in prison, it would be so easy to think, man, I could have been in Galatia. I could have been in Troas. You pulled me away from there, you pulled me away from Bithynia, you pulled me away from Troas, and you told me to come here for this? This? It would be so easy to think this is not how God does things. This can't this can't What what did I hear wrong? Did I not hear you or did you not speak? But they're sitting there in prison, singing hymns to God and praying. And God sends this great earthquake. And so just even before the earthquake, let's just go ahead and say that this truth right here, God calls us to do the unexpected, to show his power, his glory, his grace, all this inefficient redirecting, that's unexpected. It, looks not, it also looks nothing like the first mission trip, right? The first time Paul's like, okay, we got to a city, gospel, started church, cities, got just, you watch it on a map, and it's just like, well, yeah, that's exactly the way any of us will go. And so what we do in our human minds is this worked the first time, let's do it again, let's just keep doing what we've always done. And God's like, no, we're going to do something totally different because it wasn't your path, it wasn't the pattern, it wasn't your plan that made it work. It was God's Spirit. And so he interrupts their pattern, their plan, and their path, and he does something unexpected already and redirected them, and then he brings them to this place where they're anticipating, hey, God called us with a vision to come here. This is going to be great. (laughs) And then it's awful. (laughs) Right? How unexpected is that? And now here they are in the prison in the middle of the night praying, singing hymns to God. This earthquake comes, and you're exactly right. Like our reaction is, hey, God set us free. Let's get out of here. If we're thinking about us. But God's been doing something. Do you realize the process that he's taken Paul and Silas through just in this chapter of just continuing to work in their hearts, continuing to shape them and teach them and remind them of who he is and and draw them into a relationship with him where they're looking to him first. And they know that this is about the gospel. That's why he redirected them to Macedonia. And so instead of sprinting out and looking for themselves out of self-interest, they stay where they are. And the jailer cannot, like this is the moment, he can't comprehend how they wouldn't think about themselves. And it opens his heart to the gospel. Like God works through the selfless love of Paul and Silas, the willingness to sacrifice themselves. Like this, is, this is a picture of Jesus to value his life. Because the if they escape, the jailer's killed for it. To value his life over their own. To value his spiritual freedom over their physical freedom. And the love that Paul and Silas show him changes him, and he believes. And I want you to show this unexpected, just this unexpected journey real quickly here because we do have a couple of things that we have to talk about, and there's so much other stuff. We're, we'll come back after Christmas. But I want you to look at this church that God builds in Philippi. Lydia, the seller of purple, that would mean that she's really, really wealthy. And so we've got a rich Greek woman, where it says that she's from, Then we have this slave girl. We don't even have her name, but we know this. Poor slave girl. Paul casts the demon out of her and and sets her free. And then this Roman jailer would be a middle-class Roman. And I want you to think about the picture we get right here in Philippi. That when God calls them, and it's what we've been talking about the past few weeks, of the Gospels for everybody. That the thing about it being just Jesus, Jesus alone, Jesus and nothing else is that there's nothing else that qualifies you or disqualifies you from believing in Jesus and being made right with God and becoming part of his church. It wasn't socioeconomic status. It wasn't nationality. It wasn't gender. The first three people that encounter the gospel in Philippi are totally different on every human level. Rich, poor, middle class, free, slave, Greek, Roman, male, female, and the gospel's for all of them. The exact same message for, because it's just Jesus, and everybody needs Jesus. Everybody's broken. Everybody's, Paul and Barnabas were 10 minutes after they fight for the gospel, they fight over the gospel. Like we are so fickle, and we are so weak, and we are so desperate. And Jesus came for all those people. In all those circumstances, in all those situations. He came for you. Like whatever category you're in, you're in some of these categories, right? Like in this one, just this one snapshot in the church, he said, This is who I came for, and it's everybody. Whoever will believe, whoever will come to just Jesus and believe in just Jesus, this is who Jesus is for. And this is how he builds his church, and this is why. Whatever is going on. This is why we have so much hope. You know, if prison in the middle of the night after being beaten with rods doesn't stop the gospel but advances the gospel, if the two pillars of the early church and the the first missionaries of the early church arguing so much that they split over the gospel doesn't start the gospel but multiplies the gospel... Do you really think that anything that we face is going to stop Jesus and his gospel? Do you think that it's too dark, that it's too late, that it's too close to midnight? you, You can shackle Paul and Silas, but you can't shackle the gospel. Paul and Barnabas can get it wrong, but Jesus never gets it wrong. And we're just going to stop right there right now. I know there's a thousand more things we could say, but the reason is because there's something that that I want us to talk about practically. The elders met Thursday, and this is the perfect, I just feel like God brought that truth. God sometimes calls us to do the unexpected, to show his power, his glory, his grace. Brings that truth to transition to this application for us this morning. I'm getting ready to share some information with you about, like, practically Functionally, where we are as a church right now. And I want you to know up front that our elders, our heart very much is that this is information because we want to communicate openly with you. We just want to make sure that we're being transparent and we're being clear and everybody's on the same page. I'm not communicating this in any way to say, hey, here's definitely what we should do in response to this information. Right now, you just need the information and then we need to pray about it. We need to ask God to lead us. And so, when I start writing this stuff down, let me give that preface, please. And then give me the grace of, if if there's any way that you can be patient with me, for me to get to the end of this information, and then let me offer just a few thoughts at the end about it. Um, Because I think that what I feel led to say and what the elders and I have agreed on may be different than where your mind may go initially. And so will you just stick with me for a few minutes? Um, We felt like it was important at this point in the life of the church to give you an update uh, about our financial situation. And so right now, the way we function, if you want to write all this down, feel free to. It'll be on the website later on the, in the sermon time. That's why we're leaving it on here live. For us to function exactly the way we do right now, uh, on a monthly basis, our financial need, and this is kind of bare bones. We stripped down everything. It's $74,640, if you need a dollar sign there, though. For 2021, our monthly average has been 52481 so that gives us a monthly shortage this year of $22,159 a month, $22,000 a month. Now, we have reserves uh, from the sale of some property in the past and at that current shortage right there, uh, those reserves will last another eight months. And so we're trying to communicate early in advance. We just want you to know that this is where we are. November um, was a particularly low month, and so the reserves at the November rate, like if that became normal, as opposed to the rest of the year, would be five months. So that's kind of the window we're looking at right now, like a five to eight month window with what we have in reserve. Now if you're curious about this number up here, the three main categories to break it down into is facilities, and included in this number is mortgage, utilities, internet, phone, grounds maintenance, waste management, pest control, alarm, anything we could think of that was related to this facility. Uh, This comes out to 43,118 a month, which is about 57.8% of that total number up there. Um, Staff comes out to 27, 178, um, all these are a month if I don't write it, a month, which would be 36.4%, and that's five full-time staff and two part-time staff. Um, if you look at all those positions on the website, Eric and I would be the part-time and everybody else is full-time. And then miscellaneous ministry expenses, which is anything else you can think of when we're from curriculum, snacks, supplies, donuts on Sunday mornings, copy machine, office supplies, all that kind of stuff comes out to about 43, 44 a month or 5.82%, which means that this is a, like this tells you this is a very bare bones number right now. And so the question is, oh, Adam also said some of you are going to be way more visual. So if this helps, it looks kind of like this staff, miscellaneous ministry facilities. So now the question with that information is, what's God want to do with it? Because a lot of you, your gut reaction right now, and it's okay to feel these things emotionally. Maybe it's fear, anxiety, worry. Maybe it's frustration, maybe it's anger, maybe it's a little judgmentalism. Well, I give, who's not giving? Um, And so first thing I want to do before we get into what God maybe calls to do with it is I want to give you one more number that I hope changes maybe a few of those reactions. If we look at pre-closure, like before the pandemic and we closed and then reopening, our attendance since reopening is typically running about 30 to 40% of what it was the year before closing. Our giving is running 83% of what it was before. And so the first thing that I want to say to you is the opposite of what you would think is thank you. Thank you for the way that you're giving. Because right now we're giving two to two and a half times as much per person as we were two years ago. Um, And so like this is the elders and I have nothing to say where we're like, Hey, you need to step up and do your job. What's the problem? That's not like there is no guilt, and there is no pressure, and there is no condemnation. Like we just want you to know, like this is what we're looking at right now. This is what we have to be praying through. This is what we have to make decisions about. So we have to ask God to work in this situation and to lead us in this situation. And I think I'm speaking on behalf of Adam and Keith both, but I just want you to know, like I'm not panicked at all. Like I'm really not. I'm a little bit excited. That may sound weird, but I just think that one of two things is getting ready to happen. Either we're trying to walk into Galatia and God's redirecting and redirecting and redirecting because he's got somewhere for us to go and he's got somewhere for us to be and he's got some things to do and it's really exciting when he gets our attention like that. So that's one possibility. Or the other possibility is we're sitting in the prison in the middle of the night like, what is going on? We thought you told us to come here. We thought you told us to do this. And he's just about to send an earthquake that shakes everything up and changes the whole picture. He's going to do one or the other. And so to get us in a place where we're listening for that and open to that is a great thing. And just to anticipate one way or the other, he's either going to redirect us and then we're going to know we're going where we're supposed to be or he's going to show up and make this thing happen in a way we didn't think it could happen. And so it's okay like if your first reaction you hear this if you need to pray through it and process through it and you do feel this anxiety and this worry and this, I need to go fix it, that's okay. Just confess to God that you feel like you need to fix it. Okay? <laughs> confess to God that you think, well, we're going to, here's, what, here's my plan, here's what we're going to do. And then turn to him and say, what do you want to do with this? Your grace is sufficient for this. Which way are you going to pour out your grace? What does it look like for us to follow you? And so I just want to remind you of some of the things that we've seen in Acts. Because I'm going to ask you, just to start praying. Just praying that God would make it clear. How does he want us to respond to this? How does he want us to handle this? How's he using this? What are the next steps that we should take? What are the, what's the best way that we should function in following Jesus faithfully? And that's it, probably for the next month. We're going to be working on some stuff. Uh, Keith's in touch with uh, Solomon, our, our lender, and we're going to be looking at them at some, with, at some things. But the thing is, all that practical stuff, doesn't get to the deepest level of the heart things that God wants to do during this time. And I don't want all that to be the main... If that's the main focus, we'll miss what God's doing. We're not going to ignore that stuff, but it has to be in the context of what God wants to do in our hearts. And so I just want to remind you of some of the things we're seeing in Acts. And I want to encourage you that this is why I really and truly don't feel panicked. And I know from our conversation on Thursday that the elders aren't panicked. And the first reason is because we know what Jesus has called us to do, right? Go into all the world and make disciples. Be my witnesses. And he's given us his spirit for that. And his spirit doesn't reside in this room. And his spirit doesn't reside on this campus. His spirit isn't limited to this physical address. His spirit lives in you. He resides in you, in me, in us, for something way, way, way bigger than just gathering here once a week to be his people and make him known in the world. And so the first thing we would say is, because obviously you look at these numbers, the, the piece that solves the problem the fastest is the facilities. I think that's just a huge, huge chunk, um, of almost 60% of what we're doing. And so let's just say out loud that the thing that is consuming the most of our financial resources is something that's not necessary to make disciples right? It's not necessary to follow Jesus. We don't have to have a facility like this to do what Jesus has called us to do. You see none of them in the book of Acts. Like, no conversations about, they built this building, they did this. (laughs) It's people going with the Spirit, speaking the truth, making Jesus known. Like, having so little facility, they show up in a city, and this woman who's just become a believer has to say, hey, come stay with me. And so it's not necessary. Now, the question that I would like for us to ask, and as you're praying through it, is does God intend for us to use this facility to help us make disciples? Because the goal, if we get to the point where we say the goal really is to make disciples, the goal is for people to grow as followers of Jesus, that he's called us to that as a church, and we say, I believe that he's given us this and he intends us to use this facility for that purpose. That's worth giving to keep the facility. Does that make sense? Because making disciples is worth it. But don't give just because you think, oh, well, we need it because we've got to keep the facility. We don't have to keep the facility. And there is not, there's not one sales pitch or one bit of pressure this morning to say, you better give more, or in eight months, I don't know what we're going to do. It's not that. In eight months, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to keep making disciples. We're going to gather somewhere. Somebody's front porch is fine with me. And we're going to pray and we're going to read the Bible and we're going to ask God to show us what he's teaching us about himself and to fill us in such a way that we share that with other people. That's what we'll do. Like it's, it'll be fine. It'll be good. It'll be great. But he may intend for us to be here right now. Like I, You don't walk in like Paul did and just assume, this is where I'm going, this is what it's going to be, this is what it's going to be. I don't want to assume it's here and I don't want to assume it's not here right now. Like I want us to pray and, and just Over the next month through the end of the year, be praying about what God would say to us, how he would lead us. And the plan will be, I didn't even discuss this with Adam and Keith, but in my mind, I just think a month from now, when we get into the new year, we'll come back and give another update from the elders. This is what things look like after a month, and this is what we're thinking about. This is what you can be praying about now. But right now today, just that you would have the picture and you could start praying. So we know that the church isn't the building, the facility. The church is the people. And this isn't necessary to make disciples. It may be a useful tool. If it's a useful tool for making disciples, it's worth giving. Because making disciples is worth it. But if we're just doing it just because, hey, this is what it usually looks like, this is what I'm used to, this is what I like, and I'm not really, like, when when I think about us having a facility, I don't really think about us making disciples. Listen, that's a problem. If anything we do as a church, any part of our regular routine isn't geared toward and intentionally focused on making disciples the way Jesus has called us to, that's a problem. And we need to wake up and say, maybe we shouldn't be doing that if it's not about making disciples because that's what he's called us to do. And so this is just a great moment for us to stop and say, okay, open hands, God. What does it look like to really follow Jesus? How can we most effectively be your church? You tell us. So that's the first thing. The church isn't the building. The church is the people. So this doesn't threaten the church at all. The second thing that that I was thinking about is just that, that crazy number in a way that, attendance is running 30 to 40% post-reopening and giving at 83%. And I want to be really gentle in how I say this. But one of the things that tells us is that when we had a lot bigger crowd and we would have all celebrated that and, and probably kind of patted ourselves on the back about what we could see with our own eyes, and it made us feel good there may have been a pretty big gap in the crowd that we were drawing and the actual spiritual growth that was taking place. Um, because when you look at the teaching in the New Testament, money's a really small thing, according to Jesus. Like really insignificant. And really fleeting and fickle and temporary and worldly. And your heart's a really big thing. That your heart's what matters. And he says that when God changes your heart, he gets a hold of your heart. Your money follows because your money is so small that a big thing like your heart is going to pull it. And we see it today, right? God changes Lydia's heart. She overflows with generosity to Paul and Silas. It's just like, boom. Her money goes where her heart is. Those slave owners, they don't love Jesus. Their heart hasn't been changed. You mess with their money, they're really angry. Like, you see, the, it's Jesus saying, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We saw it earlier that the grace of God comes on the early church and they give generously and Barnabas sells a whole piece of land. Ananias and Sapphira haven't an encountered the grace of God in that way and they lie about what they've done. And they keep some for themselves. Like Acts has shown us over and over and over how this really little thing called money is like a window into our hearts. And so the measure is not, are you giving? How much are you giving? That's not the focus. The question is, do you believe Jesus is worth it? Do you believe Jesus is more valuable than the things of this world? And and then connected to that, if you believe Jesus is, do you believe Jesus' church is? Because if he's really the one building the church and it's his church, then valuing him and his mission is valuing his church. Do you believe that that his gospel, making him known, is worth it? And so when you evaluate over the next few weeks, you're going to do this and it's natural. Like, am I giving what God wants me to give to this body? Am I is is my spiritual growth at such a level where I'm seeing the value of Jesus, and is He calling me to do something different or do something more? As you're evaluating that, I'm going to ask you for everything I can. Do not give to the need that we're talking about this morning. Like, don't look and say, "Okay, here's what we need. Here's what we have. This is the gap we've got." To, like, I, I'm going to give because of that. If you give because of that, we're still missing your heart. And don't give to a facility. Do not give to something that is not necessary for making disciples. But if you feel led to give, give to Jesus. Give because Jesus is worth it. Give because you believe Jesus is at work here and he's building his church and you feel like you've been called to be part of that and and to invest in that. Is not really to give, not to sacrifice, but it's to get to. I like guess an opportunity to invest in something that will matter for eternity. To give up something temporary and fleeting and worldly, and invest it in something spiritual and eternal that matters and lasts forever. And I would just ask you that that be the only reason that you give. Because Jesus is worth it. Um, and there may be some of you that that this is a good moment for you to evaluate. Because you know what we found out from these numbers is that hey, a lot of us weren't giving or weren't giving very much, not in a way that reflected like real heart change, spiritual growth the way that we want to see over time. And so there may be some of you that are still there, and I don't have time to go into these, but I just jotted them down for you. If you want to look at Genesis 14, Genesis 28, and Hebrews 7 this week, I know I've given you a lot because I gave you Matthew 1, but you've got a month to do these. Um, Genesis 14 and Genesis 28 are the first two times that we see somebody ever tithe, give 10%. And the only thing I want to point out this morning is that's Abraham and Jacob, and it's 500 years before God gives the law to Moses. They don't give a tithe out of obedience to the law. They don't give a tithe because there's a command from God, hey, do this, and I've got it. Both of them, in Genesis 14, God has delivered Abraham and Lot in this big war, and he's given Abraham all sorts of riches, and out of what Abraham's received from God, in gratitude and thankfulness, he gives back. He said, here, 10% to the priest, Melchizedek. And then in Genesis 28, Jacob's on the run. He's messed up his life, and God's made this great promise to Jacob. And Jacob's like, if you keep that promise, I'll give you 10% of everything. Like, if you're going to be that good to me, I can spare And you see the grace of God to both of them melting their hearts in a way where they open up their hands. And the reason I put Hebrews 7 is then Hebrews 7 comes and reaches back to that Melchizedek story in Genesis 14 and says, hey, if Abraham gave to a priest like Melchizedek, how much greater is the priest Jesus than Melchizedek? If Melchizedek was worthy of a tenth, what's Jesus worthy of? that's part of the application question of Hebrews 7. And so ask that, not because this church needs it, not because these facilities need it, because Jesus is worth it. And, and I'm just going to say this too, that you know, if we head down this path and giving skyrockets, I don't think that means that we don't still ask the question, is this exactly the expression that God wants this church to take? I think he's at, told us to ask that question this morning. We may show up in six months and say, we've got twice the funds we need, but you know what? We're still not supposed to be in this building. Can he redirect that way? Can he redirect you that way? Was this the destination or is he the destination? If he tells us that, I want us to keep following him together, whatever that looks like. I can tell you that right now. And if he says, hey... I do intend for you. I want. He may say, "I want you to stay here," but there's some new ways for you to think about how I want you to use here. You know, we don't want. We do want to reach people who are far from Jesus, and, and we want this to be a really open place for people who are really immature in their faith. Because there's some ways that I feel like I am still so immature in my faith. In like fact, my faith is so weak and so small. I need to trust him so much more than I, and I need to grow so much. And so to have people sitting in here, when I say, hey, we had a lot of people that still needed to grow a lot. To have people sitting here who need to grow is part of the goal, right? Like if you have a church full of completely mature believers, number one, you're lying, all right? And then number two, you're not reaching anybody who needs to grow. So it's fine to have a bunch of people that need to grow, but we need to say, is that happening? And it's one of the reasons why I'm going to keep pushing us to study the Bible this way. And teach the Bible this way. Just say, I don't want to just have a crowd where we talk about God for a few minutes and there's your information for the week. But are we equipping a team, a baseball team? Are we equipping an army to be on mission for what Jesus has called us to do? To, to gather, to intentionally grow. And yeah, to be challenged, to be stretched, to be pushed. To be called to things that don't make any sense to us, that are completely unexpected. I've never seen it this way before. I know. <laughs> Maybe that's what God's calling us to. Maybe that's just what he tends to do all the time. So let's go there with him, whatever it looks like. Last thing. Sydney just reminded me of this last night. It was like right before bed. And I knew it was important. We'd gone family Christmas shopping and we did this thing where like one of us takes one girl and we shop for the other parent and the other girl and then we switch in the middle of the store and so that we can all buy stuff for each other but try to keep it a secret. And so we've been buying for everybody. And and Sydney was like the the generous one who wanted to get everybody two and three things. They're supposed to get everybody one thing each and switch it. But we're laying in bed last night and as soon as she lays down, she looks to me, she goes, Daddy, how can I make a whole lot of money real fast? (laughs) And I said, sweetie, I had a meeting this week and if you can tell me, let me know. No, I didn't say that. I didn't say that at all. I said, well, why do you need it? And she said, well, I was in Walmart tonight with Mommy, and I saw this dress I really, really liked. And she started describing what it looked like, and she was like, and I didn't look at the price tag, but I know it was a whole lot. (laughs) And, And, of course, we were just buying for other people, and she had the whole time, bought for other people. And if you ever have those moments where you're talking to somebody, or especially for me, you're talking to your kids, And then you hear God saying it in your head. And he's like, hey, you think you're saying this to her. I'm saying this to you right now. I had one of those moments last night because I just heard myself ask her. And I just said, where do you think you can get a whole lot of money real fast? And she goes, daddy. (laughs) Of course, I got up out of bed. And told Christy, I was like, hey, find that dress and order it. <laughs> they already play me really well. Like it, it, either they're really smart or I'm really easy to read and manipulate. Um, but in all seriousness, what it reminded me of was the other reason, I know I've talked about, is Jesus worth it? But the other thing about giving is it's a way of looking and saying, hey God, this is all yours. This isn't our building. It's his. He gave it to us a few years ago, hopefully for his mission to make disciples. If he wants us to keep it and keep making disciples here, that's great, it's his. If he wants us to do it a different way, that's fine. But either way, it's his. He gave it to us. And also, everything that you have is his. And part of when we give back, what we're saying is, God, I know that you've given. I know you've taken care of me. And I trust you so, like you have demonstrated your faithfulness so much that I trust you're going to keep taking care of me in the future in such a way that I don't have to hold on to all of it right now. Here, whatever, here, here's this 10%. You know what? You, you've given me extra, and so here, here's, here's another, here's 20%. Here, whatever it is, like, I can let go of this because I know you've got that. And it was, like with Sydney. It was like she didn't have to buy that dress for herself last night. She could buy for other people. She could shop for other people. She could be generous to other people and love other people because she knew that Daddy had her. Your Father in Heaven has you. He has us. Listen, He's doing something unexpected and it's really exciting. These are the moments when you see His grace and His glory and His power more than usual sometimes more than ever. And you realize that being in the prison at midnight is the best way you could have ever come to know who he is. Very, very last thing, them singing those hymns and praying. You all know, most of you know, that with my sin and unfaithfulness, I really blew up my whole life five and a half years ago. And there's been some really dark moments for me that have followed from that. Just a feeling like everything's broken. Everything's lost. Everything's shattered. And one of the things that God has been teaching me in that time is to learn to sing in the dark, to sing in the pit. And I feel like a few years ago, He said to me, This is one of those things that you won't get to do forever. When Jesus comes back and everything's right and there's no more crying and no more tears and no more pain ever again, and when the new heaven and new earth makes everything the way it's supposed to be, you'll never again be able to sing and praise Him in a moment when you're hurting because you won't hurt ever again. You'll never again be able to sing and praise Him in a moment where you're uncertain because you'll never be uncertain again. You'll never again get to sing and praise Him in a moment where it looks really dark and really desperate because it's never going to be dark and desperate again. This is one of those things that you can only do it now. So do it now. And so we're going to do it right now. I know that Some of you, like you've got a lot of questions. You've got anxiety now. You've got fear. You've got concern. I know all that's well enough, and it's okay. I'm just going to ask you right now, focus on Jesus. He's faithful. He's good. He's been building his church for 2,000 years, and nothing has stopped it, and it's been way, way bigger stuff than what we just talked about, way, way bigger stuff, and nothing has stopped him. Nothing's going to stop him now. This is the best moment yet. In weird ways, the, Paul and Silas didn't know it to the other side. But I promise you that he's doing something. I don't know what it is. Like do not think that I know. You can pray for the elders to have wisdom that he'll tell us and we'll know. I do not know. I'm not trying to act like I know. I just know that he's good and this is what he does. So we're going to pray together. And then I know I went forever long right then talking about that. I'm sorry but we are going to sing. We're, just, we're going to sing two songs, all right? So just stick with us for two songs, because Keith would be tempted. Like, he went long. I better cut it down to one. Not today. Like, we're going to sing in the dark, <laughs> not literally, but, and we're going to praise God, and we're going to remember who Jesus is, and we're going to be thankful, and we're going to trust what's coming. Be praying over the next month. You respond how God calls you to respond, whatever that is, um, and it's going to be good because he's good. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your faithfulness and your goodness and your grace that when we completely mess it up and completely blow it, we can still be commended to your grace and you take us and you use us and you keep working in us and through us. Thank you that when we're facing things that are beyond our control and are too big for us, They're not beyond your control and they're not too big for you. And thank you that you have the power to work in hearts and change hearts. We ask you to keep doing that in us and use us to do that in your world. Whatever that looks like, Father, right now, we give you all of our plans and our ambitions, all of our thoughts, all of our fix-it tendencies, and we ask you to crucify those. And I pray that the Spirit of Jesus alone will come to life in place of all that. And that whatever you do next, like I pray for the moment when we can look back and we can say, better than it ever could have been otherwise. Thank you, Father, that that's what you do. Thank you that's what you already did at the cross. The resurrection was better than it ever could have been otherwise if it wasn't for the cross. And so we believe that over and over and over on repeat in our lives and in the life of this church. And I anticipate getting to see it again. And so I thank you for it and I trust you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.